Welcome to this podcast from the third day of the 2011 Conference of the British Society of Gene Therapy, the BSGT, and its European counterpart, the ESGCT, taking place in Brighton. I'm Mira Senthilingam from The Naked Scientists. Day three began with a plenary looking into the use of stem cells in health and disease, with speakers discussing spinal cord regeneration, the use of cancer stem cells as therapeutics, and a new nuclease on the block, potentially offering more specific integration of genes during gene transfer. Opening the session was Ludwig Vallier, who's been inducing adult cells into pluripotent stem cells in order to treat liver disease. So we were presenting the, the use of human-induced pluripotent stem cells for um, therapy against uh, inherited metabolic disorder of the liver. Uh, people that have uh, inherited metabolic disorder of the liver or liver disease, uh, in fact, the only treatment for this type of disease is uh, liver transplantation. And at the moment, we need a source that can replace the liver uh, or liver cells. And uh, human-induced propellant stem cells, human IPS, and human-harmonic stem cells, human IAS, could represent a very in- interesting source of cells to produce hepatocytes that are the main cell type we try to replace in the liver. So what's the original source of cells that you're getting from the patients to induce them into the liver cells? So what we, we at the moment we use skin fibroblasts. So it's um, cells that we get from skin from patients. And we're also trying to use, starting to use uh, cells from blood. So what, what we do is we, uh, we overexpress uh, transcription factors that are known to uh, reprogram the identity of the cells and then uh, correct the genetic mutation that induce the disease and produce functional cell type from the cells that can be used for transplantation, or at least that could be used in the future for transplantation. And that's, I think, really this uh, systematic approach with, on the top of that, quality control based on uh, genome-wide analysis with uh, human genome sequencing that uh, have allowed us to, to develop this story, in fact. And how effective has it been? This, uh, one of these uh, technical revolutions you know, that can be used by a broad number of laboratories, and it works on uh, 9 out of 10 patients, basically. So you've shown that it's, it's possible and it's quite effective then if 9 out of 10 patients it's working in. But what are some of the challenges now, I guess, to take this further and get it into the clinic? So there's uh, several aspects, but I think the most important is the safety. We have to be absolutely sure that the cells we're going to inject in patients will not cause any harms. And that's uh, challenging because, you know, uh, we are looking at a long-term repopulation, uh, a lot of cells, a big organs, the liver is a very big organ. So uh, the thing that is are difficult to uh, address in animal model. So that means that uh, we, the, the main challenge is really validating the safety of the cells before to go to the clinic. I'm Jane Lubkowski. I'm the Chief Scientific Officer from Geron Corporation. And the focus of our work has really been developing therapeutics based on human embryonic stem cell for the treatment of degenerative diseases. Our work to date has really focused on using these embryonic stem cells to produce cell types known as oligodendrocyte progenitor cells that can be used for spinal cord injury. In this case, these oligodendrocyte progenitor cells have many functions. They produce neurotrophic factors. They produce myelin. They have many. They can induce uh, neovascularization. So these are all important features of cells, especially in the central nervous system, that can be used for reparative properties. What we've shown right now is that these cells, when we implant them into a 
animal model of spinal cord injury that they can promote the locomotor activity of these of these uh, animals and prevent uh, some of the deterioration that we see normally with spinal cord injury. We've done extensive safety studies right now to show that these cells um, are safe, do not lead to any neurological deterioration, or do not produce teratomas when pl- implanted into a spinal cord injured animal. So right now we're in the midst of clinical trials. Uh, we've recruited four patients so far with um, patients with complete thoracic injuries who have received these cells. We've seen no evidence of uh, severe adverse events at this point in time after administering the cells, but it's early days, and we're monitoring these patients very closely for any signs of efficacy and any signs of safety issues. So my name is uh, Tony Katum. I'm at Hanover Med School, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Experimental Hematology. My area of research is actually genome surgery, if you want to, so meaning that we, we uh, develop technologies that allow us to insert very specific uh, changes in the genome of, of stem cells or other cells. And in particular today, you were talking about tail nucleases. Right. There are different platforms that allow you to, to do this genome surgery. One is sync finger nuclease, another one is meganuclease, and the newest one is actually the tail nucleases. And I think this is probably the most promising technology right now because it's easy to design these nucleases and they have a very good um, activity and specificity data and uh, very low toxicity as, as opposed, or let's say, in, in relation to the other platforms. A common one used to date right. is um, the zinc finger nuclease, but you were presenting about, I guess, the advantages of these tail nucleases. Right. So how do these work and, and what are they sourced from? They work in a very similar way. So you have, let's say, these designed nucleases consist of two parts. They have a specific DNA binding domain and the nuclease domain, which then inserts the cut in, in the DNA. And the difference between sink finger nuclease and tail nuclease is just within the DNA binding domain. So how do you make up the DNA binding domain? Does it consist of sink finger modules or of tail modules? So that's the actual difference. And tail nuclease just came up in, in, let's say, in the last 18 months or so. But I think the technology is rapidly advancing, and it shows that you can get similar activities and, as I said before, similar specificities as with the sink finger nuclease. What have you used the tail nucleases in so far, and how have they proven to be? What's their efficiency, I guess? So what we have done so far is actually uh, to, for instance, to knock out the CCR5 locus. The CCR5 locus, or the CCR5 protein, I have to say, is the co-receptor for HIV infection. So if you knock out CCR5, and CCR, the CCR5 protein cannot be expressed on the cell surface of these cells, then HIV cannot infect these cells. So meaning by knocking out this, this gene, you create now cells that are resistant to HIV infection. So this is one application. So we compared now sink finger nucleases with tail nucleases at this specific locus. And what we see is that they have similar activities, but that the tail nucleases seem to be more specific. And I have to stress it seem to be more specific because we haven't done a genome-wide search for off-target activity. But they have similar activities. They seem to be slightly better in terms of specificity than they're less toxic. Are there other advantages too? The main advantage is that they're very easy to produce. So meaning uh, we are able to produce uh, these nuclease within one week and then we spend another two weeks for actually testing them to make sure that they cleave the target site. And when you use other platforms like the sink finger nuclease, you, sp- you can spend months and months till you get a pair that really is specific and has high activity at the target site.
Tony Cathoman from Hanover Medical School, and before him, Ludwig Vallier from the University of Cambridge and Jane Lubkowski from Giron Corporation. Following the plenary were three parallel sessions, exploring cancer immunotherapies, induced pluripotent stem cells, and one of the more successful fields of gene therapy to date, the use of stem cell and gene therapy to treat retinal degeneration. So, um, UCL's Robin Alley chaired this session looking into the eye. Of stem cell derived RPE transplantation um, may benefit some patients with macular degeneration. So I'm um, Robin Allen, I'm Professor of uh, Human Molecular Genetics at University College London. The topics that were covered were uh, the, the development of photoreceptor cell transplantation, RPE cell transplantation, with um, the prospect of um, stem cell therapy, and also um, the, uh, the development of uh, AAV-mediated gene therapy to treat uh, early onset photoreceptor disorders as well as cone photoreceptor disorders. And finally, the, the last talk in the session was about uh, the development of gene therapy to treat a commonest um, uh, form of uh, ocular disorder, uh, age-related macular degeneration. And well, you started the session by presenting your own work, which was in that particular field. Yes, and that was a project in which we're developing photoreceptor transplantation to replace lost photoreceptor cells in uh, conditions like age-related macular degeneration. What we've been doing is building on our earlier work in which we demonstrated that it's possible to transplant photoreceptor cells and have them integrate and, and, and improve retinal function and our current challenge is to improve the efficiency, and we've been able to do that, and show that we can have much improved function in, in animal models of degeneration. So this is to do with really like cell replacement in that area, which um, another speaker presented about the use of induced pluripotent stem cells to do, I guess, such replacement as well? It is. Um, and they're replacing... Um, Masao Takahashi uh, focused on uh, replacing damaged disease of retinal pigment epithelial cells um, and, and that would have to be at a very early stage of disease before you have the loss of pho- subsequent loss of photoreceptors. And in addition to the cell replacement, um, a lot of attention was also given in the session to the actual vectors used for gene delivery in order to target these diseases. Yes, and the focus today was actually entirely on AAV8 vectors. They're all uh, um, uh, involved studies with AAV8 vectors because it's becoming widely recognised in the field that these uh, vectors are the most effective for gene transfer to photoreceptor cells. And, And the field really of ocular gene therapy is now building on the uh, first clinical trial successes showing that gene therapy to treat an RPE disorder can be effective, but now we want to use this gene therapy to treat photoreceptor disorders, which are actually far more common than RPE disorders, and, but more challenging. And so the, 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 the next um, milestone will be a clinical trial to treat a photoreceptor disorder. So my name is Alberto Auricchio and I'm an Associate Professor of Medical Genetics at the Department of Pediatrics at the Federico II University in Naples. 
And our work has been mainly focused on treating photoreceptor diseases, which are inherited and blinding conditions. And we identified a vector, a viral vector, AV8, which works very efficiently at transferring genes into photoreceptors. And we have provided the proof of concept that this approach rescues photoreceptor degeneration in animal models. What are some examples of the disorders you were targeting? Liber congenital amaurosis type 4 is the specific example that uh, I am working on, but also some forms of retinitis pigmentosa. It's a mutation in a gene called the IPL1, which has a crucial role in the phototransduction cascade, resulting in the inability of the retina to exert electrical activity, so to convert light into an electric stimulus, which is why we see. How did you set about using AAV8? We found AV8 after a screening of more than 10 different AV serotypes in the retina of mice, and then we confirmed this in the retina of pigs. And how much of a difference did you see then? So targeting these particular um, retinal disorders, um, what results did you see by inserting the genes using this vector and so on? We both observed a rescue in uh, morphology, like preservation of photoreceptors. And then in Robin's lab, they also uh, went on and observed a a rescue in electrical activity in mice. This is all preclinical, but the next step is actually now in in Robin's end, and it's uh, to develop a clinical trial. Alberto Oriccio from the Telethon Institute of Genetics and Medicine, and before him, UCL's Robin Alley. Now, the afternoon saw a further four parallel sessions taking place, keeping conference attendees on their toes as they shuffled between them. They explored genetic disease, the bioengineering of stem cells, and also the use of genes and viral vectors to treat cancer. QMUL's Ian McNeish presented at this latter session. We talked about ovarian cancer and gene therapy using adenoviruses in particular. And our results show that ovarian cancers that have mutations in the genes BRCA1 and BRCA2 appear to be very sensitive to adenoviral gene therapy. Now, these two genes are mutated in around 40 to 50% of ovarian cancers. And it means that women whose cancers have these mutations should be very sensitive to gene therapy. And obviously, these are the people we should be choosing to take part in our, in our clinical trials. The other thing that we've found is that ovarian cancers that, that are resistant to the chemotherapy drug paclitaxel seem to be very sensitive to adenovirus. And that raises two really interesting things. Firstly, resistance to chemotherapy. We found a whole new pathway whereby tumours can be resistant to chemotherapy that's never been described before. But also, secondly, that if we treat people with Taxol first, then we should be treating them with adenoviruses afterwards. And what would the adenoviruses actually be containing then to actually target these cancers? In fact, the adenoviruses contain nothing. So what we've done is we've taken a small part of the adenoviral genome out so that they now only replicate selectively within cancer cells. Are there any figures as to just how effective this is in treating cancers? Most adenoviruses have, are only at very early phase 1, phase 2. The, the, the most famous adenovirus is the Onyx 015 virus, which is now licensed in China. It's called H101. It's licensed for the treatment of head and neck cancer. So if you get head and neck cancer in China, you can get routinely treated with adenoviral gene therapy. Um, the viruses that we work on, the second and third generation viruses, are still in phase 1 and phase 2 trials. So it would require another 3, 4, 5 years at least before... We're into big-scale trials before we can say for certain whether they really will help people. Ian McNeish from Queen Mary, University of London. 
A final session taking place in parallel discussed the use of non-viral vectors to target genes involved in various diseases. Examples discussed were nanoparticles, DNA mini-circles and exosomes. I'm Samir Landalusi. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Department of Physiology, Anatomy and Genetics at the University of Oxford. What we've done is that we have loaded so-called sRNAs that can be used to silence genes, uh, loaded them into these natural nanocarriers called exosomes that by themselves transport RNA and we've hijacked that system and loaded them with therapeutic sRNAs to target an enzyme important for in the disease phenotype of uh, Alzheimer's disease. In this case, we've used uh, exosomes from dendritic cells and we are currently harvesting exosomes also from other cell types. So what's the gene that you're targeting to do with Alzheimer's? And you've mentioned that this is to silence the activity of that gene. Yeah. And one important thing is that this is nothing that is exclusive for Alzheimer's. It's just a tool to reach the brain. So it could potentially be applicable for any neurodegenerative or neuromuscular disorder. Uh, in this case, uh, they targeted the base 1 enzyme, which is a beta secretase important for the, uh, for the processing of a protein in Alzheimer's disease and the production of uh, A-beta fragments that can cause disease. So what have you seen so far in terms of the efficiency of this? So far, the efficiency is we get 60-70% silencing of, of our target genes in the brain. That is quite high, uh, potentially, and should be enough for getting a therapeutic response. Now, I think there are many steps to optimize. First of all, we need a robust source of exosomes, uh, thorough characterization. We are screening new targeting ligands. The loading of the therapeutic cargo is still suboptimal, and there are lots of space for improvement in terms of loading of these, these microvesicles. But most of the data today were in healthy animals, so with an intact blood-brain barrier, uh, which I think is the best way to start because in many of the other neuronal disorders you might have leaky blood-brain barriers and then it's going to be easier to get material into the brain. Samir Landalusi from the University of Oxford. Now that's it for today's podcast but join me tomorrow for the final edition from this series as we investigate the use of gene therapy to produce vaccines and treat infectious disease. Until then, thank you for listening. I'm Mira Senthilingam.